0: Father, you told us to humble ourselves under your mighty hand, and you will exalt us at the proper time. So we come in humility today. You've told us to worship you with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, but you also warned us not to lean on our understanding, because the way you understand things and the way we do may be far different. So renew our minds today. Thank You for the power of Your Word. Thank You that, as we sang, the Spirit opened up our eyes, because without His help, we were blind. Thank You, Holy Spirit of God, for bringing conviction. And thank You for Your ongoing ministry to the people of this world, convicting them of sin righteousness and the judgment that is going to come. Thank you that when we go out this week, we can go with a sense of confidence, knowing that you speak in and through us and behind us and around us, and you work and prepare hearts that we will meet. Father, thank you that when you save us, you save us with making Christ more like us, making Christ in us more, making us more like him. And I thank you for that. Thank you that you work all things together for our good, to those who love you, to those who are the called according to your purpose, that Christ Jesus might be the firstborn among many brethren, that he might be reflected, that we might glorify your name and all that it represents and stands for. I thank you that you have been faithful to give me the strength to preach through the revelation. Thank you as we come to these final verses today that we trust you to speak, trust you to work. May we not just be more intelligent in our knowledge of theology, but may the word that we hear change us. May we not only hear it, but may we heed it. May we not be those who just hear the word of God, as James says, but those who are willing to do it. Father, I thank you for the youth and Matt and many of our staff and adults who are in Graniteville this morning, we want to lift up that campus to you. Thank you for the outreach they had yesterday. We pray that you would use that church in and among the neighborhoods around them and in broader Aiken County to bring people into the kingdom. Thank you for those who are meeting this morning in Grays, South Carolina, a church that was on the edge of death, but thank you for these who are faithful we pray that their candlestick might be restored with us that even this week you would give opportunity for each member sitting there this morning to reach out we pray the same for the hilton head bluffton campus that your will would be done there and here as well that we would be obedient this week to the great commission we have sung that there is no other foundation that can be laid than that which is christ jesus that he is the solid rock on which we stand So may we build on His life alone, on His truth alone. Help me now, Spirit of God, fill me and anoint me, and use this message I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you take God's Word this morning, please, and turn to the last book of the Bible, to the last chapter of the Bible, to the very last two verses of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22. Today we come to the end of a long study just about three years when we began this book called The Revelation. And some of you think, I must be dreaming, I can't believe we're actually here. Some of you thought it would take me to the end of the millennium to finish. But we are here, and today we're going to look at the last words of Jesus Christ ever recorded. And so you can see the title of the message is Christ's final words. Remember Revelation, there's a firm date, it's written 95 A.D. And these words even come after the special appearances that the Apostle Paul has, that those words that are given to him after Christ has ascended into heaven. Now, to give us a running start into our text, I want us to begin reading in verse 16. If you didn't bring a Bible, maybe there's a neighbor near you that would share theirs with you. You need a Bible today. You need one every week. This is a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching, Bible-unashamed church. You need a copy of God's Word. If you don't have one... Come to meet the pastor, and we will supply you one. Revelation 22, beginning now in verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly, to which John responds, amen, come Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all." Now I want to set the context of these verses, first the broad context and then the immediate context. So I want you to go all the way back to Revelation chapter 1 this morning, Revelation chapter 1. We've seen in these last several years that this book is one of the most neglected, misunderstood, and misinterpreted book in all the Scripture. And yet we just studied a few weeks ago in Revelation 22 and verse 10. That a command comes by God through his angel where John is told not, not to seal up the prophecy, the words of the prophecy of this book. These words, the revelation, are to be expounded. They are to be proclaimed. They are not to be kept under lock and key. These words are not to be hidden, concealed. They are to be preached and revealed because they are understandable. And so John has said, don't seal it up. We saw the exact opposite command to Daniel. Why? Because we are living in the church age, and the return of Christ has been imminent. We have been in the last days since the day of Pentecost, but now I believe we are in the last of the last days, what the Old Testament calls the latter days, a term that refers to that time right before Messiah comes at His second coming. But since the rapture happens before the second coming... We know we are all that much closer. As you see God setting the stage for the second coming, you know the rapture which takes place first, is that much more imminent. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, it opens the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to Him, which God gave Him to show to His bondservants the things which must soon take place, and He sent and communicated it by His angel to His bondservant John. And so, because there is a unified content throughout this book, it is described not as the book of Revelations. There is no such book. I hope you know that by now. It is called the book of Revelation. It's singular in the Greek, the Apocalypsis. It means the uncovering, the unveiling. That is, God has taken something that was hidden and He is revealed. And I find it rather ironic. That this book that calls itself in the opening verse in Apocalypse, something that is revealed and opened, in many ways is the most mysterious and closed book today. Notice verse 4, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. So the greeting is from God the Father, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, and it's also from the seven... Uh, spirit, sp- the sevenfold Spirit of God before the throne, which we saw as a reference to God the Holy Spirit. And so we studied from the prophet Isaiah seven distinct ministries of God the Holy Spirit. And so some translations paraphrase this, the sevenfold Spirit. And then in verse 5, we notice the greeting too is from Jesus Christ. And so this letter is from God the Father, God the Spirit, and from God the Son. But there is great emphasis placed on the greeting through God the Son. In verse 5, he's identified as the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. And the Lord Jesus is highlighted here. Why? Because he's the hero of this book. He is the theme of this book. Death could not hold him in the grave. He is the firstborn of the dead. He is has supremacy, which is what the word firstborn, it doesn't mean the first to be created. He is the firstborn. He has supremacy over all the grave and over all this world. Now, we have seen there are other people raised from the dead, eight specifically in Scripture, three in the Old Testament, five in the New Testament, but they were only raised to life. Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. He is the first one ever to be resurrected to life, to come out of the grave in a forever body, never to die again. The firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. I hope you've been released from your sins through the blood of Christ. There's no other way to be released. Furthermore, verse 9, I, John, was on the island called Patmos, Because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So the ninth verse tells us he's on this island, as this map reminds us, out there in the Aegean Sea, off the coast of Turkey. It's called Patmos. Some of you have been to that place with me when we did a footsteps of Paul tour. We went to the very cave in which John was given the revelation. It's about 10 miles long. At its widest point, it's about six miles wide. And it was used by the Romans as a penal colony. Political prisoners were banished and sentenced there to hard labor in the quarries. So on a human level, we're told in verse 9, he's here because of the Word of God and the testimony of God. He's persecuted. He's been imprisoned for the faith that he proclaims. But he's also here, according to verse 10 on this island, in the Spirit. He is literally and physically in Patmos at the University of Persecution, but he's also here in the Spirit. Notice, I was in the Spirit. On the Lord's Day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet... So here in verse 10, John tells us it happened on Sunday, that is the Lord's day, as He was in the Spirit. He hears this loud voice that he compares to the sound of a loud trumpet, and of course the loud voice, we are told in verse 8, belongs to the Alpha and the Omega. And we learn in verse 17 that the Alpha and the Omega that is in view is not God the Father but the Lord Jesus, the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. He is the beginning and the end. And the words in the command in verse 11, notice, are unmistakable. Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. These are literal churches. These are not epics of time. These are seven actual churches pictured here on the map in current day Turkey. So he writes specifically to seven churches, and it's not by accident. God has no coincidences. These seven churches represent various characteristics, pro and con, that churches throughout the age have had. And of course, this was not John's idea to write this book. He is not writing, well, the churches are persecuted. Maybe I can write a word of encouragement to them no, he's commanded to write this book. It's not his choice of subject, just like Jude had one thing in mind and God had him write something entirely different. He's commanded to write this book. Mark it down. This is not John's revelation. This is God's revelation. And so we studied the five stages of pure transmission in chapter 1 as it goes from God the Father, to God the Son, to God's angel, to John, to the churches, and by application to all of us reading it today. And so we're told that on the Lord's day, He hears a loud voice, and He turns around and He sees seven golden lampstands. Look at verse 13. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, one of the Messianic titles. In Daniel, for God the Son, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. Praise God, John sees him standing, where? In the middle of the churches. And I'm glad that that's where he stands today. On the one hand, he stands in glory, interceding for us. On the other hand, he is here today in our midst. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst." And so the Bible teaches in the one hand, Christ is omnipresent, He is everywhere, but also on the Lord's Day in His omnipresence, because He still has a localized body sitting in heaven at the right hand of the Father this morning, in His omnipresence in a special way, He is here this morning. Now, I know these people who say, well, you don't have to go to church to worship God. That's a half-truth. Friend, He's here in a way that He's not just in your prayer closet, though you can meet Him there. He comes in a special way where two or three are gathered in His name. And that's why we come and we meet on the Lord's Day on Sunday. So don't ever get the idea that you don't need to come to church. That's a lie from the evil one. You need to be here. And not to be in a local house of worship, if you can be, is sheer disobedience. It is forsaking your assembling together. And so in verses 14 to 18, he continues to give us a picture of the glorified Messiah who's in heaven this morning and yet present here. Notice, his head and his hair were white like wool, like, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Here's the one who had laid his head on Christ's bosom at the Last Supper, but now, 60 years later almost, he falls at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, "'Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last.'" And the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Look, you're not going to go to heaven someday and strut and say, hey, where's Jesus? I want to meet him. You'll be like John. You'll be on your face before him. And just so we wouldn't mess up this book, it's one of the few books in the Bible where God puts the outline in the book itself in Revelation 1:19, Therefore, write the things which you have seen. That's the past. Write the things which are. That's the present. And the things which will take place after these things, that's the future. So according to verse 19, when you read the Revelation, it becomes very clear that it divides into three sections. Chapter 1 is describing the past, chapters 2 and 3, the present, chapters 4 through 22, the future. And I have no doubt that Revelation can be further subdivided in terms of the big picture that God has, but this is His divinely inspired outline. And it really keeps you from a lot of trouble, from artificial manipulation. So following the introduction or the prologue in the first eight verses, Revelation 1, 9 through 20, describes the things which you have seen. And he writes for us, and we studied it in depth, a picture and all the meaning behind each of those symbols. Remember, this is signified, it's communicated. Symbols are given throughout the Revelation, and most of the symbols are interpreted within Revelation or through the some 300 references to the Old Testament in its 404 verses. Then he says, "'Write the things which are,' the things present." That's the seven churches. So again, here is a map of the seven churches. There was a Roman road that formed like a horseshoe. So Jesus basically walks around the horseshoe. These seven churches no doubt came from Paul's ministry in Ephesus where he spent three years, a critical key city that spread out, took the Great Commission at heart, and began to plan churches in other places. Now we started in Ephesus, that's number one there on the map. I called it the formal church because while it was straight as an arrow doctrinally, they had left their first love. Verse 4 I have this against you. You have left your first love. And there are churches like that in every century. Churches that are sound theologically, but the people have lost their heart and their passion and love for Jesus. From Ephesus, we went 35 miles up the road to Smyrna, and I called it the fearful church because of the persecution these saints knew. Look at verse 10. I hope you brought a Bible. I told you to. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. It was one of two churches of these seven in which there's no reprimand, only praise, because of their willingness to lay down their lives for the Lord Jesus, for the gospel. And church history demonstrates that typically a persecuted church is a pure church because it's not popular to be a part of a persecuted church. From there, we traveled 50 miles to Smyrna, to Smyrna, and and, uh, from Smyrna, excuse me, to Pergamos, or Pergamum, you could translate it either way. And I call that the faltering church because this was a church that was compromising the Word of God. And there are many churches like that today, men who step into the pulpit, who are afraid to tell people the truth, afraid to do what is right, Verse 14, but I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things, sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. There's a lot of churches like that today that are married to the world. Leadership just looks the other way when there are sinful issues going on in the church. Then we went 40 miles southeast of Pergamum to the church of Thyatira. I call that the false church because they were largely corrupted in that they tolerated false doctrine in their assembly. Look at verse 20. But I have this against you. Don't look at me. Look at your Bibles. That you tolerate Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, And she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they may commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. False doctrine always leads to false behavior. And this church would not purify its ranks. They let this heretical woman in the ranks. And there's a lot of heretical teachers, men and women alike today, and people are afraid to address them because they're afraid what people will think. Then we traveled another 30 miles southeast to Thyatira, from Thyatira to Sardis, and I called that the fruitless church. Why? Because they had kind of a ho-hum spirit. And so Jesus spells out their problem here in chapter 3 in verse 1. I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. There are a lot of dead churches, even evangelical churches in America today, and maybe you came from one where nothing is happening, no life, no fruit, no conversions, no baptisms, no joy. Then we traveled another 30 miles southeast of Sardis to Philadelphia, and I call that the faithful church. That's what we want to be like, like the church in Philadelphia, chapter 3 and verse 8. Jesus said, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power. It's the opposite of the preceding church that had no power. Their candlestick is flickering. It's ready to go out. This church had a little power. You say, that's not a put down. No, that's a put up. Little is much when it's in the hand of God. And if he gave us too much power, we'd pop. You have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. This is a church that had an open door. God gave them opportunities, and they repeatedly walked in faith through them. Then finally, we came to the seventh church. We traveled another 50 miles southeast of Philadelphia to Laodicea, and I call this the fashionable church. They thought they were well off, but Jesus said they were wretched and miserable. Look at verses 15 and 16. Jesus said, I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Then, beginning in chapter 4, all the way through the end of chapter 22, the Apostle Apostle John writes about the things that will take place after these things. Metatata. it's stated twice in chapter 4 and verse 1. You know there's a turning point. We're now moving to the futuristic section of the book of Revelation. After these things, I looked, a door standing open in heaven. We saw that that was the rapture. God opens the door, He invites John up, and He sees the raptured church saints. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place. After these things. And so it's not by accident in this chapter you meet the 24 elders. And we saw 24 was a representative number in Scripture of a large group. And these 24 elders represent the raptured church. By this time, they have been evaluated, they've been rewarded, and they are praising the Lord. And so after chapter 4, the seven churches are never mentioned again until they return with the Lord Jesus. Why? Because the church will not be here for the great tribulation. God is not gonna beat up His bride for seven years with His own wrath and say, come on up into heaven. No, He's gonna take us out. Now there will be tribulation saints that will meet man's wrath and Satan's wrath, but God in His mercy is going to catch up His church and take us into heaven. And so when John arrives in heaven in chapter four, verse three, he sees God the Father Himself sitting on a glorious throne. And it's like a courtroom, and uh, it's an awesome scene, and it's a place that is filled with praise. And so in chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, we see the four living creatures and the 24 elders representing all the redeemed who've been brought to heaven by grace, and they are giving God praise for three things, glory, honor, and power as seen in his creation. Look at verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. Because of your will, they existed and were created. And so they are acknowledging God's right to judge the earth because God Himself created the earth. And so John is taken in heaven in order to get a perspective of what God is going to do to the earth and on the earth after the church is removed. And so then we stepped into chapter 5. Same courtroom in heaven, but now praise has ceased for a moment as heavenly business is transacted, and we're given, in essence, front row seats as to what is going to happen. And so when you come into chapter 5, things begin to change. Look at 5.1, I saw on the right hand of Him, that's the Father, who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven uh, seals. Now, remember, the one sitting on the throne is God the Father. He holds in his right hand a scroll, a biblos, a book. It's a seven-sealed scroll. We studied it. It's the title, Deed to the Earth. It's written on the outside and on the inside. And very simply, on the outside, it says the world loses. On the inside, it says believers win. And he takes it, and he's going to hand it to God the Son. Now, notice how it unfolds. Verse 2, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And then in verses 3 and 4, it tells us the loud voice that fills the whole universe. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly. Because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. You say, I didn't think people cried in heaven. No, there's tears in heaven. It's in heaven. We studied that God will wipe away our final tears. And so here's John. He's weeping. But then we learned in verse 5 that Jesus can open it. And one of the elders said to me, "'Stop weeping. Behold, the, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals.'" So Jesus is given the title deed of all of the creation. It's been kept safe in the right hand of God the Father. Adam, of course, he lost it. God had intended for Adam to rule. But because of his rebellion, he lost the title deed to rule over the earth. And so Satan now is called, small g, the god of this world. And so it was a legitimate offer that Satan makes in Matthew 4 Luke 4. You bow down and worship me, Jesus, and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. But Jesus, with his own blood purchased, you, me, everyone that will believe, And he provided the opportunity once again to rule on the earth. Now, remember, this is a seven-sealed scroll, a legal document. And by his own blood, he has paid the price so that he can regain what the evil one has taken. And so in chapter 5 and verses 12 and 13, among other things, it shouts his deity, look at it, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing, that sevenfold blessing that could be said of God only in every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them. I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They've worshipped God the Father as creator in chapter 4. Now they are worshipping the Lamb as Redeemer in chapter 5. Let there be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. So these people who say that Jesus never claimed to be God are just blind. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said, I and the Father are one. This whole chapter shouts his deity. You might as well tear chapter five out of your Bible if you are rejecting the deity of Christ because it plainly affirms it. Now in chapters six through 18, we are told of the wrath of the Lamb. Revelation chapter 6 becomes a shock to the censors. There are seal judgments, there are trumpet judgments, and then there are bold judgments that will follow. And so we looked at these 21 judgments, and I told you it's important that you understand the structure, the architecture of these three sets of judgments, or you'll get confused quite easily. And so, for instance, the first trumpet cannot come until the seventh seal is open. And the first bold judgment cannot come until the seventh trumpet is blown. And so this first slide here shows you the seven-sealed scroll. And the first four judgments have become almost an idiom in our day, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And so when people use that, even unsaved people, they're describing the advent of war or terrible events. And so we saw in the first horse, the white horse, was the Antichrist, the one who comes in the place and instead of Jesus. Then there is war in the second horse. There's devastation and there's death seen in the white, red, black, and ashen horses. Four ghastly, ghoulish, uh, gruesome riders who are representative of all the trouble that is going to come upon the earth in the next seven years. After the four horsemen, the fifth seal... The seal of martyrdom is broken, and we see there, we studied all the saints, these who come to faith after the church is raptured. And if you're counting on becoming a believer after the church is raptured, it will be too late. The only people who will hear and believe the gospel are those who have never heard it before in clarity and in power, according to 2 Thessalonians 2. Then we saw the sixth seal. It's the first of many cosmic changes to come. And uh, and then the pattern is the same: six seals, an interlude, the seventh seal. We'll see the same when we come to the trumpets: six trumpets, an interlude, the seventh trumpet. We'll see the same with the bowls: six bowls, an interlude, and then the seventh bowl. And the interludes are not a pause in time; they are a reflection of what has been happening during this time. And so, in chapter seven, the first interlude. We learned of 144,000 Jews from 12 tribes who are saved. Look at verse 4, chapter 7. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And so these Jewish men, and they are men, are preaching the Word of God, and their witness, and the results of it are given in verse 9. What the church has not done in 2,000 years will happen during this seven-year period. Look at verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches, were in their hands." And so we learned in this section that with the six seals of judgment, it perfectly parallels the message that Jesus gave to three of His disciples a few days before the crucifixion on the Mount of Olives. This slide reminds you of that. First, there will be false Christs. And that is a picture of the white horse and the false Christ of all false Christs, of course will be the Antichrist himself. Then Jesus said, you'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. That's the second seal, the red horse. Then Jesus spoke of famines in various places. That's the third seal. That's the black horse. Then he spoke of death. That's the fourth seal. That's the the ashen, the pale horse. Then he spoke of martyrs, people who would die for the faith. That's the fifth seal. Then cosmic changes. Now, while Jesus is not specific on the same level the revelation is in Luke chapter 21 and verse 11. He said there'll be signs in the heavens during this time. Again, this is the first half of the tribulation. It represents the sixth seal where there's cosmic changes. And then Jesus said the worldwide preaching, this gospel will go to the whole world and then the end will come. It has nothing to do with the rapture. Jesus could have come one day after Pentecost if He so chose. It has everything to do with the second coming. And it is during this seven year period that the gospel will go to every single unreached people group in the world. People who've never heard the name of Jesus, people who've never seen a Bible. It is going to go out through the whole planet. And then, of course, there'll be an event the abomination of desolation that Jesus speaks right in the middle of this seven year period there on the Mount of Olives. Look at chapter 8 and verse 1. It opens rather dramatically. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now remember, there are seven seals, and the seventh seal is contained seven trumpets, and the seventh trumpet is contained seven bowls. Unlike the seals that we study, that you can see just one at a time, when the seventh seal is open, you can see all seven trumpets and all seven bowls that will follow. And when the recipients in heaven to this message, see what is ahead. Silence. Thirty minutes. No one says anything. It's like their breath was taken away. Now again, the architecture is the same. Six trumpets, an interlude found in chapters 10 through 14, and then the seventh trumpet that will bring the seven bowls. And as you read through these chapters, you'll discover there's an explicit cause-effect relationship between the opening of the seven seals and the unfolding of the seven trumpets. And so the opening of the seventh seal prepares prepares for the seven trumpets, because the trumpets can't be blown until the seventh seal is opened. And perhaps this is the longest time of silence ever in the history of heaven. Look at chapter 8 and verse 7. It's awesome and terrifying what is described. The first trumpet, it sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and the green grass was burned off. That's a judgment on the vegetation, and you can't live without it. Verse 8, the second angel sounded. And something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. God now brings a judgment on a third of the seas, and a third of the ships, and a third of the living creatures in the sea that will die. Because man has failed to recognize and worship the God of creation, because man today worships evolution, he worships science, he worships the green movement, instead of the God who created it all, God is going to judge the very thing that they are worshiping. Verse 10, the third angel sounded. And a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is called Wormwood. And a third of the waters became Wormwood. And many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. This is a judgment on the fresh water rivers and all the fresh water spring sources across the planet. They're made bitter. A third of them will be destroyed. Verse 12 The fourth angel sounded. And a third of the sun, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were struck so that a third of them would be darkened and the day would not shine for a third of it and the night in the same way. And so John is telling us that God is going to allow amongst the celestial bodies light to be at a diminished rate. The Bible tells us, of course, that the world loves the darkness. You love the darkness, God says, let me give you some. And a third of the day that would otherwise be light will be darkened as a third of the night when the moon and the stars are shining, they will be darkened. And then an angel cries out in chapter eight and verse 13, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpets of the three angels who are about to sound. This angel is basically saying, if you think this is bad, wait until you see the last three trumpets because you haven't seen anything yet. And then the fifth trumpet is sounded, chapter nine, verse two. He opened the bottomless pit, and smoke went up out of the pit, like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth, and power was given to them, as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when, a, when it stings a man. And in those days men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die and death flees from them. We saw these are not literal locusts. We let scripture interpret scripture. They're ugly like locusts, but these are demons. And these demons are released from the abyss And what they bring will be so harsh, so painful, that men will want to commit suicide, but they will be prevented. A man may take a gun to his head, and the demon will take it away. No one will be able to take their own life. Now, remember, there are various places for demons in the Bible that we studied. This morning, they're waging war in the heavenlies, as the next slide shows. Paul says we wage war not against flesh and blood, but powers and principalities. There is an invisible war that is unfolding, and Daniel 10 illustrates it for you. There's another class of demons in a section of hell known as Tartarus, both Jude and Peter says they are in eternal chains, never to be released again because of a heinous, wicked sex crime that they committed during the days of Noah. Then there are those angels who are in the abyss who have lost their freedom to wage war. Remember when those two uh, uh, Garadine demoniacs were dealt with by Christ, the demons begged, don't send us into the abyss. Why? Because they would lose all freedom to wage war under Satan's control but these demons who today are in the abyss, they are the worst of the worst. They are going to be released during this time. And then, of course, the final resting place of demons is the lake of fire. Look at chapter uh, verse 13, the sixth trumpet is blown, and one angel releases four angels, and they're described here in verse uh, 15. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and the month and the year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. Those people should have come to their senses. But verse 21 says, And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. And so this slide of the seven trumpets show in chapters 8 and 9, as uh, you see these uh, seven trumpets, but again, there are, you see these six trumpets, but then there's another interlude before the seventh trumpet is sounded. And again, this is not a time interlude. This is an opportunity to reflect, to see what has been going on during this time frame. We're in the second half of the tribulation. Remember, the abomination of desolation is the trigger event. That trigger event brings 30 minutes of silence into heaven. Why? Because the first trumpet is sounded that will ultimately release the seven bowls of wrath to come. And so in 8 and 9, you have the first six trumpets. Then in chapter 10, we learned of the angel in his little book. Look, if you will, at chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. So I went to the angel, telling him to give me the little book. And he said to me, "'Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey.' I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And in my mouth it was sweet as honey, and when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter." John said the taste was both sweet and it was bitter. It's sweet for the believer in the sense that we are going to see all of the glory that God has for us, but it is bitter for the unbeliever in his mouth because of the judgments that are going to follow and then the eternal retribution that will come. Then in chapter 11 in verse 15, uh, before the seventh trumpet is blown, we learn of two witnesses. And these two witnesses are used by God to share the gospel for the first um, period of time, the three and a half years. And again, remember, he's looking back at what has been going on during this time. And so these two witnesses, who are they? Who witnessed for the first three and a half years? I suggested to you there were Moses and Elijah. Elijah, almost everyone agrees with. Why? Because the Bible speaks of the second coming of Elijah, that Elijah is going to come. Malachi says in Malachi 4 and verse 5, behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He says that in the last book of the Old Testament. And interestingly, in the verse before, Malachi 4.4, he mentions Moses. And by the way, Jesus affirmed in Matthew 17.11 that Elijah is coming back. Elijah is coming and will restore all things. And so I think it's interesting that these two witnesses have a ministry that mimics the kinds of miracles and things that both Moses and Elijah did. I don't think it's by accident that on the Mount of Transfiguration, the Lord Jesus describing what will follow these seven years is in discussion with both Moses and Elijah. Now, Christians may debate as to over who these two witnesses are, but I can tell you no one can debate what they will do. They will be murdered for preaching the gospel. Look at verse and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, that's Jerusalem, which mystically is called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. So their bodies will be led dead in the streets to mock. They'll be treated like roadkill, like a dead animal, showing the utter contempt many people in the world will have for their message. Verse 10, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate. And they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. But the devil's Christmas party will soon be ended because as the world celebrates and exchange gifts over the death of these two men who brought all kinds of judgments by the word of their power through God, as their bodies turn blue and rigor mortis sets in and then they begin to bloat and the cameras of the world are on them, suddenly A miracle happens. Verse 11. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. As the cameras of the world are transfixed on this, suddenly a glow of health returns to their body, and they stand to their feet, and the party party goers are just confounded over what has happened. Verse 12, And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. Then they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies watched them. I love it. A loud voice speaks directly from heaven and says, Come up here. And I suspect this is one of God's angels, just like Lazarus is carried by an angel of God into Abraham's bosom or what we would call heaven. Look, it's nice when you go to a new place to have someone to take you, to lead you. That's one of the ministry of angels for believers. It was a great comfort to me when the Lord took our precious little granddaughter Jane home to know (laughs) that she went escorted into the presence of Jesus. These two men, they're going on a real dreamliner. They're going up there in the cloud, and the world will watch. And God is reenacting what had happened three and a half years earlier in the rapture, where suddenly millions of people across the planet were missing, and people are no doubt connecting the dots. Then the seventh trumpet is blown in verse 15. However, between Revelation eleven fifteen 15, and the Unleashing of the bold judgments, there's another parenthesis, a double parenthesis of sorts. And again, just like the interlude of chapter seven is telling you what is happening during this time, so again, here is a chart again to fix it in your mind. Remember the events as they unfold. The next event on God's prophetic calendar is a rapture. Suddenly we'll be caught up. Harpazo will meet the Lord in the air. In this seven-year period, divides into two halves. In the first half, the false Messiah will protect Israel and there'll be the religion of the harlot. There'll be a one-world religion, but it'll be all the isms of the world brought together. And in the second half, when the abomination of desolation is committed, Israel will be persecuted and there'll be only one religion and it's the religion of the Antichrist. And again, the trigger event is the abomination of desolation. And so the function here of chapters 12, 13, and 14, again, are parenthetical, but they are introducing you to the key players during this seven-year period on history. And there are seven personages that are highlighted in these chapters in the final drama of human history. First, there is the woman. We studied here in chapter 12. She is representative of the nation of Israel. Then there is the dragon. Scripture interprets Scripture. It's the devil himself. There's the male child that Israel gives us. We call him the Messiah, Jesus Christ. There's Michael, who's called the archangel. In addition, the Revelation, chapter 12, verse 17, mentions the rest of her children. And that was the saved Jewish remnant, remnant Jews who acknowledge Yeshua is Lord. Then there's the first beast out of the sea. We saw that as the Antichrist. Then there's a second beast, beast who comes out of the earth, and we saw that as the false prophet. Now again, the sequential order of these different judgments does not mean during these parentheses that everything is stopping. He is reviewing what has been happening and who the key players are. So the seventh trumpet contains the seven bowls, and we are introduced in chapter 15 to those bowls, and then in chapter 16. But look at chapter 12. Let's look at the details in a little more specificity. We studied Satan's first fall from his original position in Revelation 12 and verse 4, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. So his position was robbed. We studied it in Isaiah 14, in Ezekiel 28, we let the Scripture interpret the Scripture. And then if you remember, the woman who's mentioned is Israel, and the child that the Jewish people give us is the Messiah. The dragon, again, is Satan. And of course, in verse 7, Satan has always hated Israel, and he's always hated God's purposes. And so we read of a war in heaven, Revelation twelve seven, and there was a war in heaven, Michael and his angels warring with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war. So Satan and his demons fight Michael, the archangel, and his angels. There's a war in heaven, and yes, Michael wins. And Satan now, along with all of his demons, are no longer operating in the realm of the heavenlies during this time. They're literally, physically, actually on the planet. You don't want to be here for that time. And he will especially do everything in his power to wipe out the Jewish people. Then in chapter 13, we're introduced to the Antichrist and the false prophet. Again, key leaders during this seven-year period. And they will capture the hearts of millions and millions of people. Men, when they reject the truth, they will believe a lie. Listen, the opposite of unbelief is not just, well, I won't believe anything. The fact is in scripture, when you refuse to believe what God says, you will end up believing a lie. That's why many people are in cults today. They heard the plan of salvation like Joseph Smith, but because he was immoral at heart, didn't want to believe the truth, he ended up believing a lie and created his own. And so you see that happening. Look at verse four here. And they worship the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worship the beast saying, who is like the beast? And who is able to wage war with him? There was given him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And so powerful will these two people be, we learn in verse 16. And he causes all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free men and the slaves, to be given a mark in their right hand and on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here then is wisdom, he says. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number of his name is that of a man, and the number is 666. Now, people have tried to figure out throughout time who the Antichrist is. Listen, if you figure out who the Antichrist is, you will means that you've missed the rapture because he won't be revealed until after the church is removed. But his name, because in Greek, every letter of the alphabet, like other languages, has a numerical value. It will add up to 666. Then chapter 14 opens up with the Lord Jesus on top of Mount Zion, what we call today the Temple Mount, Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. John is looking into the future. He sees these 144,000 Jewish evangelists, Christ is back, and he sees them standing there on the Temple Mount. They can put up to a half a million Arabs at times like Ramadan, up on that 35 acres. But on this occasion, there's 144,000 that no one could kill because they had the seal of God. You could take a gun, you could take a knife. They were indestructible because God had a plan and a purpose for them. But then in addition to these 144,000 and these two witnesses, some angels are involved in giving God's message. And so, in verses 6 through 11, we saw three angels that are called to Preached three messages, and one of these three angels has the eternal gospel, according to verse 6. Chapter 14, then of course, crescendos as the war of Armageddon is unfolded. Look at verse 18. Then another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the great wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horses' bridles for a distance of 200 miles. And so, there, if you've stood at Harmageddon, some of you have been there with me, and you can see the Jezreel Valley and Stands from end to end, it's 200 miles long, and there's going to be so many soldiers and so much bloodshed, and the ground will be so soaked with blood that as the horses run through it, the horse will splash all the way up to their bridle's. And so God is using these angels. He's using these two witnesses. God doesn't typically use angels. In fact, He doesn't use them at all during the church age to preach the gospel. He is using just those who have been saved by grace to preach grace, but during this time, because it's the final chapter in history, because God's heart bleeds for those who are lost, He's using even an angel to preach the eternal gospel. That brought us into chapter 15 where it serves as an introduction. It's the shortest chapter in the Revelation to chapter 16. And there we're introduced to the seven golden bowls of wrath, also called seven plagues. Look at 15.1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. It's the same for a Teleo. Jesus shouted from the cross, telestai. That is, it is finished. It's paid in full. But now using the same verb, the same author, John reminds us the wrath of God that is on the earth during these seven years is finished with these seven bowls before it turns into the eternal wrath of God. And so these seven bowls, also called The plagues are described as the wrath of God. And then chapter 16 gives us the specific nature of these plagues as they are unfolded. And again, here's the relationship. And again, it's not by accident. Jesus likened the start of the tribulation to a woman in labor. We're not in birth pangs today. You got all these nuts on the internet saying this virus is what Jesus said. It's not what he said anymore when an earthquake happens next week or a tornado, that these are the birth pangs. Nothing could be further from the truth. It may indicate that there's a time of turmoil in the world, and maybe that things are the pregnancy is here, but the birth pangs do not begin. The scripture is clear until after the church is removed, and so we saw the exact pattern in the Olivet Discourse as we see in the Revelation. And just like a woman in labor, whose pangs get more intense and closer together, there's an intensity that increases. So the seal judgments affect a fourth of the earth. The trumpet. Judgments affect a third of the earth. We come to the bowl judgments, and what does it do? It affects the entire earth. So again, seven seals, and the seventh seal are seven trumpets, and the seventh trumpets are the seven bowls of God's wrath. Here's a picture of the bowls of wrath. First sores, the sea of blood, blood waters, the sun, the darkness, the Euphrates. Again, a brief interlude of explanation, and then the seventh bowl that affects the air. Look at the first bowl in verse 2 of chapter 16. God's wrath results in what? A loathsome loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshiped his image. Again, I think this is God not wishing any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. He is just crying out to them. He is giving them a taste of the eternal physical suffering that will come to them lest they repent. And this plague would say, look at what happens to those who follow the Antichrist. They're plagued with sores that even the Antichrist can't heal. And if there's one left that has not yet uh, ascribed his allegiance to Antichrist, maybe he will during this time. Verse 3 tells us that the second bowl, resulting in the sea becoming, notice, blood like that of a dead man. And every living thing in the sea died. Look, billions of people every day received their sustenance from the sea but now millions will face starvation because everything that is in the sea will be dead verse 4 tells us the fourth bowl of the wrath of god that was poured out of the, out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water and what happened they became blood every source of fresh water, be it a lake, a river, a well, a spring, it is now turned to blood. The bottled water, if that's not affected, the stored water will quickly be gone, and you cannot live but about a week without water. It tells you you are right at the end of the tribulation. Down in verse 8, the fourth bowl is poured out where the sun is so hot That it burns men with fire, but instead of repenting, we learn in verse 9, what did they do? They blasphemed the name of God. In verse 10, we learn of the fifth bowl, and we're told there, Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongue because of pain. And they blaspheme the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. Even though this effectively effectively signals the death of the entire planet, men keep blaspheming God. And they refuse to repent. That's how blind and callous they are. Verse 12: the sixth bowl of wrath, the sixth angel poured out his bowl in the great river, the Euphrates." And so we noted how critical the Middle East is to end times prophecy. That's why it's in the news every day. Why? Because God is going to unfold the final events in the Middle East. So here are the Euphrates, they're in the Middle East, and its water was dried up so that they would be prepared for the kings from the East. And this would certainly represent, you know, the kings of the Orient and all those Muslim countries. Most of the Muslims in the world are east of the Euphrates River. And they will come up this dry riverbed for the final war. But according to chapter 20, not only will they be there, all the nations of the world are going to go against Israel. Verse 13, and I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. Or we might say out of the lying mouth of Satan, out of the lying mouth of the antichrist, out of the lying mouth of the false prophet, are these three demons, like an unholy trinity, that have come to deceive the world. And they are going to get the nations of the world to gather together there at this place called Armageddon. And if you have seen that place, Napoleon called it the best battle plane in the world. He said there was never a better place in the world to fight a battle. And of course, then the seventh bowl is poured out. We're told of lightning, thunder, and then in verse 20, and every island fled away, and the mountains were not found, and huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. Listen, Revelation is not given to scare you. It's given to prepare you. It's given to help you to see every dimension of God's character. And God intends with this judgment to prepare the world for the Messiah. He's going to bring it back to that condition before the great flood. It's going to be leveled out. Remember, after the flood, the mountains rose, the valleys sunk. Then chapters 17 and 18, they're very important chapters. And they ask and answer two questions. Chapter 17 asks and answers, what about religion in the tribulation? And right off from the start, there'll be a false religion. That's what people do. They get religious when they get scared. And they will go to their little isms across the world from a place called Babylon. We saw Babylon is a code name for Rome. Just like Wall Street stands for New York, Babylon in Scripture stands for Rome. And so Rome will be the headquarters of this one world religion. It's called a harlot. Why? Because unlike the true church, the bride, it is prostituting the devil's ways through this system. And we read in verse 6, and I saw the woman, this harlot, this false church, drunk with the blood of the saints, with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. When I saw her, I wondered greatly. And we learn in chapter 17 that the harlot rides the Antichrist. Why? Because the Antichrist is going to use religion for his purposes. And for the first three and a half years, he's going to allow all these religions of the world, and he's going to pull the world together through both a religious and an economic system. But then there will come a time when there will be no latitude, when he commits the abomination of desolation. He'll say, it's me and me only, and all other religions will be outlawed. And so verse 16 says, the beast, with the support of the 10 kings described, will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her with fire, the capital city, probably the Vatican itself, will be destroyed. Chapter 18 asks and answers another question what is going on politically and economically during the time of the tribulation. And so chapter 18 gives us the world conditions just before the final judgment. And it's the most complete picture of a worldwide government and economy that has ever been contrived by man. You look today, people are concerned with this virus, that the effect will be worldwide in terms of the economy. Why? Because the economies of the world are brought together. Well, nothing like in this coming day, they will be one in every respect, both in terms of government and in terms of economy. And the kings of the earth will see the capital city of the Antichrist go up in flames and all the presidents and all the prime ministers and all the kings and rulers in verse 10 will say, whoa, whoa, the great city Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. And every economy of the world will come crashing down. It is a sorrowful time. It is a sad time. But you do not have to be here for this time. Then chapter 19 opens with the four hallelujahs in verse 1, verse 3, verse 4, verse 6. I have them all circled. In verse 6, we're given the source of the, this word hallelujah that literally means praise the Lord. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Handel brought that, of course, right into his Messiah. And it will be during this time of the great tribulation that Jesus will sit down for what's described here as the marriage supper of the Lamb. Then notice verses 11 to 16. And I saw I heaven opened. behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. That's us, by the way. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so this is describing the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the same title, by the way, given to the God the Father, who is coming back on his stallion, and we the church, on our stallions, will come back with him along with those tribulation saints who are already in heaven. And then in verse 17, and again, he's coming back to this place to put an end to Armageddon. We're told, then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying, all the birds which fly in heaven, come assemble for the great supper of God. What's the world doing? The world is being crushed. And so they think, let's go against God's Messiah and his people Israel. And so they all gather together to go against Israel and so God says, birds, come for a big supper so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, free men and slaves, the small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and as the Antichrist and his kings and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And what you find here in chapter 19 are two contrasting banquets. There is the marriage supper of the Lamb that we'll be at, and then there is the great supper of God. And the one supper, it will be a scene of great joy, and the other supper will be a scene of great sorrow. Those who believe in Jesus will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Those who have followed the Antichrist will be the supper at another supper when the birds of the air will literally eat their flesh. We'll eat at the supper. They'll be eating at theirs. Verse 20, and the beast, as the Antichrist was seized, and with him the false prophet Who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image? These two were thrown into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And so Christ rides in the sky, and with the word of his mouth, he defeats all the armies of the world. And the first two people to go into the lake of fire, who are there a thousand years later when Satan is cast in, They're there because it's forever. It's not annihilationism. Then in chapter 20 in verse 1, "'And I saw an angel coming from heaven, "'holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. "'And he laid hold of the dragon, that Satan, the serpent of old, "'who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. "'He threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him "'so that he would not deceive the nations any longer "'until the thousand years were completed.'" After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who'd been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus. Tribulation, saints. And because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So Satan, for a thousand years, is locked up in the abyss. But verse 7 says... When the 1,000 years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. So during this 1,000 years, there'll be a time of unparalleled peace and righteousness and judgment, and any sin that takes place in that 1,000 years will not be because of the devil... Now, we're going to see that tribulation saints, we studied it. I say we're going to see. I hope you've seen it. They enter into the uh, millennial reign of the Messiah in their natural bodies, and they have children and grandchildren, and lifespans are protracted for a 1,000 years. Men's lives, the Scripture says, will be like an old tree. It'll be like the days of Noah. But then at the the end of the thousand years, out of this abyss, out of this prison, Satan will be released. And the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren of tribulation saints, even with Jesus on the planet who did not believe, will go against him in this final rebellion. Remember, we looked at six purposes for the millennium. One, to prove his promises to Israel that God keeps his word. He's going to set up a kingdom for them. Secondly, to prove his initial intention for man, the millennial kingdom will reflect what God really wanted Adam to have before sin came into the world. He will keep during this time the promises he has made to the church. He'll prove his promises to God the Son. He'll prove his answers to our prayer that we say your kingdom be done on earth as it is in heaven. But among other things, as this passage draws out, he will prove how depraved man really is Because when Satan is released, we're told in verse 8, he will come out to deceive the nations, which were in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. They came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. This is not Armageddon. This is at the end of the thousand years. It's the third of three key battles we studied And these people who did not believe in Jesus during the 1,000 years will gather under Satan's leadership, but Jesus will devour them in a second. He'll squash them, verse 10, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. Why? Because they're not annihilated. Remember, these are real people. The Antichrist is a real human being as is the false prophet. Empowered by the evil one, yes, but real people, are they annihilated? No, they're still there a thousand years later. And they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. And that brought us to the final judgment of all time. Verse 11, I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose presence earth and heaven flood away, and no place was found for them. And so God promises in verse 15, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Listen, if you are cast into the lake of fire that burns with brimstone, it will be no one's fault but your own. Because God has no intention to send people. In fact, God didn't originally create it for people. Jesus will say, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. And yes, it's eternal The same word ionion that's used to describe this place of judgment is used to describe heaven and is used to describe God who's eternal. Hell was never created for us. Then that brought us to chapters 21 and 22 where we spent the last 10 messages explaining this place called heaven where every one of your loved ones that name the name of Jesus are this morning. In this place, of course, we saw is just the capital city of a brand new earth and universe that God is going to create. That's the broad context of our passage. <laughs> that brings us now into the immediate context. Here in chapter 22, we saw the final invitation in verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost and then in verses 18 and 19, last time we saw the final warning, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will, take, will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life, showing they're lost and never saved, and from the holy city which are written in this book. Now that brings us today to the final words now remember what's the theme of the Revelation? We studied it in the first chapter, Revelation 1:7. The theme of this book is Jesus is coming back. And this book ends precisely where it started. And so in verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, "Yes, I am coming quickly." This promise gives assurance to every persecuted Christian in the first century and every believer in every century to press on and to live pure, separated lives. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I'm coming quickly, to which John says, amen, come Lord Jesus. And listen, there's a desire in the heart of every regenerate, born-again person to go home and to be with Jesus. And then this book closed with a magnificent word of grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. While we need grace to be saved, you are saved by grace through faith. You also need grace to sustain you each and every day. The grace of the Lord Jesus. And my brothers and sisters, that is the book of Revelation. Now, maybe... Maybe there are some minute details that I've covered in these three years that you don't agree with me on. And sometimes people poke at me out the door, oh, you said this, and I'm ah. But I want to tell you something we all agree on. He is coming back. Now, let me remind you, you may differ on some of the minute things, but He is coming back. Johnny went off to war. They thought he was gone, and then they heard the good news that he survived. He was found, and he was coming home safe. And the day of that long-awaited journey back, family members were arguing about what they should do, and one of the neighbors was like, well, what are they all arguing about? Johnny's coming home. Well, Some think Johnny's coming home on the bus. Some think Johnny's going to rent a car and come home. Some think Johnny's coming home on the train. Some think we need to be at the airport waiting for Johnny, and then suddenly the doorbell (laughs) rings and it's Johnny. Listen, I may not have perfectly exegeted this book, but the king is coming. The question is, is he coming for you, just as real as I am standing in front of this pulpit this morning, will be his return from heaven. And if Jesus comes to catch up his church today, it will be eternally too late for some of you because of your rejection of the truth. The Bible is crystal clear during the tribulation period. You will believe a lie. Today is the day of salvation. You can't come to Christ when you want to come to Christ because you can't come to Christ on your own. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. But God loves you enough to convict you as he convicted me of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And if you will come today because tomorrow may be too late, and the Spirit who is spurring your heart today to call upon Jesus may stop tomorrow because of your insolence and your arrogance and your unwillingness to do what God says. Now, Holy Father, I thank You that You've allowed me to complete this book. I am grateful for the things You have taught me and shown me in these last three years. Thank You for Your Word that is powerful and life-changing. And I pray today, Father, for someone who is listening to this message, maybe through the internet on one of our campuses or in this room, and they're not really sure that heaven is their home. They think they might go there. They want to, but they don't know. And your word teaches they don't know because they haven't yet come in true, genuine faith. Because you cannot lie. Your word says it's impossible for you to lie. Moses recorded, you are not like a man that you would ever lie. And you promised on the basis of what Jesus did, that he paid in full the wrath we deserve, that if we will call on the resurrected Lord, that he will save us today. Thank you for the gift of God, which is eternal life. Help someone today to humble themselves and to say, Jesus, I am bankrupt. Your word says you did not come to save the righteous but sinners, and I am a sinner. I can never do enough to earn heaven, for your demand is perfection. But I thank you that you died in my place, you were raised for me, and you promised that if I would call on your name, you would save me. So today, I say, Lord Jesus, save me. Father, there are so many in our world who are so wrought over some virus that only deals with physical life. And they have missed a bigger disease called sin that deals with eternal things. And some of us are more consumed about a virus than we are with the souls of men and women and boys and girls. And may we repent of such callousness, repent against such a lack of compassion, help us to be the church, to be a viable witness that men will see our good works and bring glory to you who are in heaven. May you use us in this new week, and we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.